BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. It was January of 1393, and the Queen of France, Queen Isabel, was throwing a ball. Ostensibly, the ball was to celebrate the third marriage of a twice-widowed lady-in-waiting. But really, the party's purpose was a little broader. The Queen's husband, King Charles VI, was often ill, prone to fits and bouts of insanity that would last months. Queen Isabeau liked to hold plenty of events at court to distract and entertain the king and hopefully keep him in his right mind. The main event of this ball would be a chivalry featuring six senior knights. The knights would dress up in costumes as wild men from the forest and then delight the attendees at the party by dancing and howling and screaming in their faces, gesticulating at them, running around in a frenzy, and inviting the party guests to guess their identities. If you've never dressed as a wild man from the forest before, or if you're planning on doing it next Halloween, the costumes involved covering the men from head to toe in linen soaked in pitch, and then sticking on enough flax so they looked hairy and, well, wild. Their faces were also covered in masks made of the same linen soaked in pitch, covered in dried flax. No one, not even the queen, knew that one of the six mysterious dancing wild men was actually King Charles VI. The raucous celebration began, and women in the crowd screamed as the half-dozen men leapt around them. And then, late to the party, came the Duke of Orleans, the king's brother. The Duke of Orleans was drunk and holding a torch. Part of the game of the chivalry was guessing which knights were hidden beneath the layers of extremely flammable linen and pitch and dried flax. And so the Duke leaned in closer to get a better look. Maybe you see where this is going. The wild man burst into flames. As he flailed, he quickly ignited the other wild men around him. A young duchess, only 14, recognized the king and managed to protect him from the sparks with her skirts. But for the rest of the men, it was a gruesome scene. The smell of burning pitch and then charred flesh filled the room. A cardinal wrote that he watched the burnt genitals of one of the men fall to the floor, releasing a stream of blood. One of the other knights was able to save himself by jumping into a barrel of wine, but aside from the king, the rest of the men 
perished from the flames. The evening would come to be known as the Ball des Ardents, Ball of the Burning Men. It's a grisly chapter that unfortunately seems to represent the reign of Charles VI. His reign was an era of chaos and voices shouting over each other for control. As king, Charles would be trailed by tragedy, by civil war and foreign invasion. But his most pernicious enemy would be his own mind. For 30 years, the king would suffer alternating periods of lucidity and madness. As his kingdom fell into disarray around him, the king would be as powerless as he was that night, the ball of the burning men, as he watched his friends fall and burn. Death at what should have been a party. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. Charles's father died when he was just 11 years old, a few weeks before his 12th birthday. The age of majority for taking over a kingdom in the 1300s was 14. And so, in the meantime, in came Charles's uncles. The duties of the kingdom were divided up amongst them. His paternal uncles, the brothers of the former king, were the most important. They were the Duke of Anjou, the Duke of Burgundy, also known as Philip the Bold, and the Duke of Berry. Duke of Anjou became regent, Burgundy took over the royal household, and Berry was given the governorships of the regions of Languedoc and Aquitaine. Charles's one maternal uncle, the Duke of Bourbon, assisted with the royal household. As you can imagine, chaos ensued. Like evil uncles out of a fairy tale, the group of them, known as the Sires de Fleur de Lis, were selfish and avaricious, less interested in running the country and more interested in using their newfound power to benefit themselves, undoing all of the good work that the dead king, Charles V, had done lowering taxes in the meantime. The regent, the Duke of Anjou, first snatched whatever treasures he could from the dead king's private treasury. Then, to make more money for himself and also to fund the increasingly expensive Hundred Years' War, he raised sales taxes and withheld payment from troops. The troops didn't take that very well. In retaliation, soldiers flocked to Paris in protest. To quote W.H. Jervis's A History of France, the furious and underpaid troops took to the streets to commit, quote, every kind of excess. More details about what those excesses are aren't given, so unfortunately we'll have to use our imagination. Their outrage was directly against the regent and they demanded that the Duke of Anjou lower the new taxes. Of course, faced with an angry mob of soldiers, the Duke conceded. But his concession was only temporary. There would be another tax on cloth, and another riot, this time in Rouen. But this time, the regent was ready to put the riot down with swift and immediate force. 
the leaders of the revolt were executed, and the duty on cloth continued. Now that he had tasted victory in subduing the masses, the Duke of Anjou would no longer concede or back down. He enacted a new tax in Paris, an excise duty on the produce sold in markets. That led to another massive insurrection in which people stormed government offices and released the prisoners at the Châtelet. But the group of protesters, called the Malotines, didn't have a natural leader, and so the fervor and energy of the riots eventually dissipated. Terms could be negotiated. The court declared that the tax would be abandoned and that there would be amnesty for the riders. For a moment, there was calm, until the court started with arrests and executions. Amnesty be damned. Finally, the city's advocate general arranged to pay the Duke of Anjou a hundred thousand francs if there would be no more retaliation for the protests. The Duke happily agreed. Almost immediately after this strategic and domestic disaster, the Duke of Anjou got word from his cousin, Joanna of Naples, that she was making him her successor. So, as one does, he waved goodbye to France and bounded off with a small army to Naples, where he was all ready to beat out a competing heir to the throne. But before he did that, the Duke of Anjou died suddenly in Italy. One uncle down, but no matter, Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, took over duties as regent. The Duke of Burgundy had married the heiress of Flanders, he used the power of France to control that region against insurrection with a brutal fist. The people of Ghent, who had been rebellious, were met with the full power of what Jervis calls, quote, rapacious and brutal aristocracy. Wanting another ally to defend Flanders, particularly against the threat from the English, the Duke of Burgundy arranged for his nephew, the king, to marry Isabeau of Bavaria. Charles VI was 16. Isabeau was a few years younger. You might recall that the age of majority in France was 14, and that by this point Charles was well past it. So why then did he keep letting his uncles control the country's affairs? Well, we don't really know. Charles didn't seem that interested in being king. It seems as though he thought that his uncles were doing the hard parts of his job for him, and he was free to hunt and ride and drink with his friends. But soon, his uncle's mounting military failures would leave Charles no choice but to finally accept his crown. First, there was a disastrously failed invasion of England. One fleet was hit by a devastating storm off the coast of Brittany. And then, the Duke of Berry, having not supported the invasion in the first place, delayed until the tide and season meant it was too late to sail. England swept in, attacked, and destroyed several French ships easily. But there was more that Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, wanted his nephew to do. They didn't call him the Bold for nothing. 
The Duke of Burgundy said that the king needed to mount an expedition against a man named Duke William Gijrus, who had somehow insulted Charles, Burgundy said, but who had absolutely insulted Burgundy's wife's aunt. In other words, it was a petty family squabble, and the Duke of Burgundy wanted to use the power of the King of France. And so, young Charles mounted the expedition like his uncle asked. But in the end, it led to nothing. Charles lost a number of troops. And in the end, when he did win, all he asked for was for William of Gadrus to apologize, which he did. The Cardinal Bishop of Lyon spoke up at the next council board meeting. By now, the king was 21 years old. It was time for him to terminate the regency and cut free his selfish, battle-hungry uncles. Charles agreed. He told his uncles he would be taking over, and with all of the grace and charm in the world, his uncles respectfully conceded their power over to him. That very same day, Cardinal Bishop Blanc died of suspected poisoning. But that could just be, you know, complete coincidence. As official king, Charles VI reinstalled the incredibly competent and wonkish ministers that his father had used, a group both affectionately and mockingly called the Marmoset, the Marmosets. Together, they brought back the sensible tax policies and laws that had disappeared in the confusion and selfishness of the four-way regency. It's at this point that Charles gets his first nickname, Charles le Bien-Ami, Charles the Beloved. But it wouldn't last. Just a few years later, disaster and death would reach Charles and cling to him for the rest of his life. In 1392, one of the king's closest advisors and allies, a man named Oliver de Clisson, had an attack on his life by another gentleman named Pierre de Crown. Crown was a young cousin of the Duke of Brittany, and recently he had been distanced from court. He blamed Oliver de Clisson for his change in fortunes, and so one evening, when Oliver de Clisson was walking home, Crow and a few friends ambushed him in the street and left him for dead. Fortunately, Oliver de Clisson lived. Crow, on the other hand, fled to the safety of his cousin in Brittany, who took him under his protective custody. Well, that would not stand for King Charles VI. He needed justice for his friend. And so, on July 1st, the king mounted an expedition towards Brittany. The summer was sweltering, and the pace of the party traveling was excruciatingly slow. A few weeks into their journey, at the northwestern city of Le Mans, the king came down with an illness that kept him in bed for three weeks. The king's physicians wanted to keep him in bed for longer, but Charles refused. Even though he still had a fever, he mounted his horse and demanded that the party continue. That day was August 5th, and it was swelteringly hot. 
They rode for a few quiet hours while the sun basted down on them from directly overhead. And then a man appeared on the road. He's sometimes described as a leper or a beggar. But either way, this man jumped in front of the horses and started waving his arms. Ride no further, noble king, he shouted. Turn back, thou art betrayed. He kept repeating that over and over again. Thou art betrayed, thou art betrayed. The king's guards forced the man out of the road and shook him off. But the man wouldn't leave. He continued to walk behind the horses, shouting up at the royal procession, Thou art betrayed! The man was mad, clearly. The king ignored him. In fact, the king found that he could ignore most things in the hot August heat with the gentle, lulling stride of his horse beneath him. The king felt himself sinking into something of a stupor until a crash. A page had fallen asleep on his horse and dropped a lance, which struck a helmet with a loud bang. Charles VI went mad. He pulled his sword and started whipping it back and forth at his own men. You're all traitors, he cried. The king stabbed at his knights and men, flailing wildly. By the time they were able to disarm the king, he had already murdered one of his own soldiers and wounded several others. After a few days, when the king came to and his fever broke, he was deeply regretful and ashamed of what he had done. He was haunted by it. His uncles would take over again, just for a bit just until the king was well again. If he ever got well again, they said in private. Just a few years later, more of Charles's friends suffered grim, accidental deaths at the ball of the burning men. What was meant to be a light-hearted romp to lighten the king's spirits became a living nightmare. Of the four men who eventually died from their burns, Only one died that evening. The other three died slow and painful deaths with burns covering most of their bodies. For his part, the king's brother, the Duke of Orleans, felt horribly guilty for being the one who had held the initial torch. The people of France were outraged when word of the tragedy reached them. Was it attempted regicide? How had anyone allowed the king be put in such a position of danger. In order to appease the public, the Duke of Orleans and several of the king's advisors embarked on a literal walk of shame while the king rode on horseback beside them to the Notre Dame Cathedral to do public penance. The Duke of Orleans also paid for a chapel to be built at a nearby monastery. The people still loved their king, Charles the Beloved, but he would test that love for the rest of his reign, and eventually he would take on a new epithet, Charles Le Fou, or Charles the Mad. For three to five months, Charles would be completely lucid and sane, and then for anywhere from three to nine months, he would lose his tether to reality forgetting his own name, 
forgetting he was king, unable to recognize any of his children or his wife, Isabeau. Once, when his wife came to his bedchamber, hoping to um, personally remind her husband of who she was, an exasperated Charles just told his servants to take care of whatever it was that this woman seemed to want. He didn't realize why that was funny. When it wasn't indifference towards his loved ones, it was outright animosity. The only family member he seemed able to recognize was his sister-in-law, the Duchess of Orleans. Jealous of her relative power over the king, the king's uncle, the Duke of Burgundy, remember him, took advantage of the era's superstitions and said that the Duchess had only made herself known to the king with sorcery. Burgundy had her banished from court. This tension between Burgundy and Orleans would become an important pattern. In 1395, King Charles spent weeks claiming that he was St. George. He ran around a lot of the time. His staff would have to wall off entrances to the king's residences so that he wouldn't get lost and they wouldn't lose track of him. In 1405, Charles didn't bathe or change his clothes for five months. It was around this time that he suffered from the glass delusion, the idea that he himself was made of glass and that he could shatter at any moment. He was obsessed with protecting himself from shattering, insisting on having iron rods sewn into his clothing so he could stay straight and unharmed when he might be forced to interact with anyone. Just as it had been during his childhood, Having no clear regent for the king meant that the kingdom fell into confusion and chaos, nearing anarchy, as rival factions, the queen, the king's oldest son, the Dauphin, the Duke of Burgundy, and the Duke of Orleans, were all vying for power. After the Duke of Burgundy died in his 60s, his claim to power is taken up by his son, John the Fearless, the new Duke of Burgundy. In 1407, while the Queen was recovering from an illness, the Duke of Orleans visited her every day. At the end of November, the Duke received a message from the King, saying that he needed him at the palace immediately. The Duke of Orleans left to go heed his brother's request. But the message was a fake, meant to lure him out onto the street, where he was attacked and killed. So, who killed the king's brother? Well, John the Fearless, the new Duke of Burgundy, didn't really deny that he did. In order to avenge his father's death, the new Duke of Orleans enlisted the support of his father-in-law, the Duke of Armagnac, and thus began the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War. All of this was happening at the same time as the ongoing Hundred Year War with England. As a rule, you don't want to have a civil war at the same time you're also fighting off an external enemy. It gets a little complicated with the battles and rival factions, but the Cliff Notes version is that in all of the chaos, Henry V of Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare fame swept into France and won the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. 
During a period of lucidity, Charles VI signed the Treaty of Troyes, which named Henry V as Charles' successor and married Henry to one of Charles's daughters. In the Shakespeare version of the story, the treaty happened right after Agincourt, but really these things are slow and undramatic. It was five years later. Charles VI is the unnamed French king in the Shakespeare play, but none of Charles's madness is referenced. Instead, if you've read Henry V, the French king is portrayed as just indecisive, dominated by the overbearing presence of his ministers and advisors. When Charles VI finally does die, it's met with wails in the streets. They cry for him in a way that they didn't at all for his uncles or his brother. Even after 30 years of madness, he was still Charles the Beloved. That's the story of Charles VI, but keep listening after a brief sponsor break to hear a little bit of what happened in France after his death. And a quick personal note, if you want to support the show, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash noblebloodtales, where I'll be posting episode scripts and bibliographies and announcing things like merch drops, because guess what? We're getting merch! BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The Treaty of Troyes made Henry V of England next in line for the French throne. But Henry died before Charles did, which made Henry's son, Henry VI, the next French king upon Charles's death. The baby was crowned in Paris at Notre Dame. But Charles's son, the Dauphin, who should have gotten the throne didn't take that lying down. He fought to win back his crown from the English usurpation. And the Dauphin had an advantage. You see, there was this peasant who led a siege at Orleans that lasted only nine days, 
And then this peasant led the troops through another handful of quick and miraculous victories and allowed the Dauphin to make it to Rheim where he would be crowned Charles VII. Eventually, this peasant who bolstered the French troops to victory would be captured by the Burgundian sect of French nobles who were allied with the English. I told you it got a little complicated between the Burgundians and Orleans. After being put on trial, the peasant was burned at the stake, but she was later canonized as a Catholic saint. She's sometimes called the Maid of Orleans, but you probably know her as Joan of Arc. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The show is written and hosted by Dana Schwartz and produced by Aaron Mankey, Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Trevor Young. Noble Blood is on social media at Noble Blood Tales, and you can learn more about the show over at NobleBloodTales.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.